My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Force Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at ProBible.com. I want to wish you a happy new year. This is our first podcast of the year. I know that was it Larry David, I think, who put the cap on saying uh, happy new year on January 3rd. I know I'm like a week past that. I apologize. But I don't know if I agree with that. That voice that you just heard was my buddy Brandon Katz back on the show. Brandon is a, as I like to say, uh, he analyzes analytics over at Parrot Analytics. What's going on, dude? It's going good, man. Even though uh, you've been saying that for for months, actually more than a year now, it still makes <laughs> me laugh. It's a funny <laughs> intro. Because I still don't know what the hell you do. So there you go. <laughs> I'll explain it to you one of these days. All right. So what do we have today? We have, I mean... What's new in the world of uh, of film and television? Because we are kind of this episode, I've got three interviews coming up for you. I have Jake Johnson talking about his directorial view, Self-Reliance. I have David Ayer talking about his new film with Jason Statham, The Beekeeper. And I have Vincent D'Onofrio, who we talk a little Daredevil and... Uh, D'Onofrio. D'Onofrio. What'd I say? D'Onofrio? Yeah. <laughs> I think I might have called him that, too. Uh, because that's just I'm how sure my... he's gotten it before in his yeah, life. I'm sure yeah, he's he's not yeah. plucked about but it. But as like as like a New Jersey Italian, like I need to be the one to get that stuff right. You know, like it's not excusable for me to fuck it up. Uh, <laughs> so we have um uh, some interviews for y'all. I'm trying to think of what kind of major news has come out this week. Uh, Millie Alcock is up for the role of Supergirl. Leonardo DiCaprio officially joined Paul Thomas Anderson's next film with Regina Hall and Sean Penn. Yeah. That's pre- what, babe? I said meh. Meh? Yeah. I mean, me and you have talked about this before. Like, whether it's we're not smart enough and everybody yeah. else is, I just don't click with Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, the majority. There are a couple early on in his career that like Boogie Nights and a couple others that I definitely really like, but I just don't get them. Yeah, like I, uh, people always put Punch Drug Love on like the best rom-coms of the last like 20 years or so. And 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 like few films, I mean, short of like foreign or like experimental or whatever, like few films make me feel like I don't fucking get this. Punch Truck Love was one of them. <laughs> I agree completely. Like, I think Adam Sandler and the performances are really good, but I never got, I just don't get Paul Thomas Anderson's movie. I'm not criticizing him. I'm not saying he makes bad movies. They just, I, they don't sink into my brain or my heart at all. I will say that uh, from the Deadline Report, this is saying that this is going to be his most yeah. commercial attempt at a film. Um, sources that I have say it's going to be an adaptation of the book Vineland. Um now, the Vineland book is uh, written by Thomas. Let me look that up real quick. The same guy who wrote Inherent Vice. So he wrote this other book called Vineland. And, uh, but Inherent Thomas... Vice wasn't commercial at all either. No, I know. I know. <laughs> but this one seems a bit more like Once Upon a Time in Hollywoody okay. than that one did. Uh, but I did see it was put, put in contemporary time. So maybe he's changing things up a bit. Oh. And Regina Hall's great too, so I'm yeah. glad. To see yeah, her. and it's great to see her get a role like this. Yeah. Like, wow! Did you see uh, Honk Honk for Jesus Save Your Soul? No. And, um Sterling K. Brown. It's it's on Peacock. Very very interesting. Very good. Film or show? It's a it's a film. It had like a limited theatrical run, then came to like mm. Peabody and Peacock. But uh, really really underrated, overlooked movie of uh, I think 2023. 
um, Bong Joon Ho's Mickey 17 was taken off the calendar, which ironically enough was my number one most anticipated movie of the year. So I'm off to a fucking great start over here. <laughs> I saw that. I, I saw someone else say, and like in hindsight, it made a lot of sense. They were like, I don't think they ever intended to release the movie that date. They just wanted to save that date for either Godzilla vs. Kong, which obviously moved into it, or another marquee like event oh, film. And I'm like, I'm like, I guess that makes sense in that strategic sense, but I'm disappointed. I was super looking forward to it. I mean, what it dude, Parasite was 2019. He's had plenty of time. I mean, I know I think this is him. probably more studio decision, not him. You don't think he's got final cut these days? I'm sure the the movie's probably done or close to done. Yeah, and they're just. I, I'm I'm assuming this is just like full studio. You know, you think it's like a like a issue with not or do you no, think it's related scheduling. to the just film? Scheduling. Okay, so I think it's just scheduling. That's it. Maybe they think it's so good that they're gonna push it to the fall because they think it's a. Uh... That would be great. I but... will say I've read I've read the book that it's based on. As soon as I heard that he was going to be doing this, as soon as uh, you, you give me anything sci-fi and then Bong Joon-ho, I'm fucking there. So I read it. Great story. You could totally see how his brain fits in this story. Um, it's pretty sci-fi, though. So it's difficult to imagine it being taken seriously as a best picture contender. Like, what's the last sci-fi film to get, like, a rival, maybe? Yeah. You know, uh, so I don't really know... But if anyone could do it, it's him, right? And with that cast and such, I, I don't want to uh, detail what the plot is because I know some people like to go into it blind. But yeah, that's a major bummer. Uh, B, while I look up some uh, news, do you have any... Do Honestly, speaking of book adaptations for big sci-fi projects, obviously this week Netflix released a full trailer for Three, Bottom, Three Body Problem. I have to be honest, and I know there's legions of fans, and I know that the second and third books in the series are supposed to be significantly better... I thought the first book was one of the most overrated, like overhyped, big name titles that I'd ever read. I was bored to tears. And frankly, I don't think the trailers look that good. Obviously, it looks very ambitious. There's very atmospheric tones going on. It's got a really cool cast. They've made it this very big, uh, uh, you know, grand scope of a, a global story. But I'm just not that interested interested both from reading the first book and from the trailers and this is a huge huge swing for netflix and the game of thrones guys i mean you know i have to watch trailer but do they name drop like from the game of thrones guy like do they give of course they do from the creators of game of thrones see i don't know if that's a marketing tool these days i think it still is I think dude, it people are still fucking pissed, dude. I know, but they're they're like this. The the ending of Game of Thrones was terrible, but and really, you know, the last season and a half were were pretty darn choppy. But it just doesn't erase for me like the the four or five seasons that came before that we loved, which you've yeah. said on this show. Too. I say it all the time. I do. However, yeah. however, that doesn't relate to the marketability of the men responsible. You know, like I'm not giving I'm not giving them the pass. I'm giving the show the pass. You know, if that <laughs> if that kind of makes sense. Um, the Rebel Moon. We both hated it. Fucking <laughs> yes. just an absolutely just uh just a uh tornado, just a pus filled tornado of sight and sound. You know, oftentimes, particularly in the streaming era, before you know, in terms of like the eighties and nineties, I can't really speak to us, but in the streaming era, when a show gets canceled and revived by another platform, another network, oftentimes it still fails to do well commercially. Yeah. And I feel like, of course, a lot of the creative process is going to be things we don't see. And, and there's 
very much a deserving runway for retooling. But the fact that it started off as a rejected Star Wars pitch should have said something to us. You know what I mean? I want to give Snyder the benefit of the doubt because they've the in that sense, because Lucasfilm hasn't known their ass from their elbow <laughs> in like in like 10 years. So I don't think that they're really the um barometer of what's a smart thing to make or not to make. Speaking of which, oh, the Mandalorian movie. I, I don't know. It's like I feel like I'm turning into a hater on this episode because it's like three things in a row. But uh, you know, we we have said on this show that like while the Mandalorian has some really fun elements and I think we've learned to appreciate it for what it is, it isn't necessarily the most gripping story. And you know, it, it, I think me and a, another buddy we're talking about just the general, the Mandalorian movie and the fact that Ahsoka season two is is happening. And we agree. We were like, I get that rehashing old characters and just endlessly spinning out the same stories is a safe way to keep people watching. But when all of it is just bad anyway, might as well try new things. And like, mm. I, I, I agree to that to a, to a significant degree. I think there's some risk taking that needs to be injected into Lucasfilm in order to keep it fresh. And of course, the Mandalorian, it does very well commercially. Ahsoka season one did solid commercially. So I understand the business logic behind it, but it feels like we're circling the same drain over and over. And that it, I, I think I, I messaged you and Cade. It's almost as if Star Wars and Lucasfilm is daring me to, to quit my fandom or at least become less uh, enthusiastic. I mean, yeah, between that and like the Ray film, like you couldn't you couldn't conceive of two less exciting projects. And I like Ray as a character, yeah. but like, are you really going to put a sequel to Rise of Skywalker? Have it that be the next movie you put out after the, Rise the of Skywalker? First, yeah, the first Star Wars movie in, in five years. Like, you... I'm okay with a Ray movie if it was like 2028, you know? And then I'm like, okay, I've, I feel like enough time's passed. I'm ready to kind of jump back in. But for the, like you said, the first movie since Rise of Skywalker, I don't want more i want something new no they're they're in a tough spot because they have that job. sort of what it's an impossible job oh it um is it yes because you you're literally no matter what you do gonna piss off large swaths of people yeah but we've seen things like the last jedi and andor and rogue one figured out you love the four yeah, the last jedi pissed off a whole bunch of people yeah that's right um but, but I said that they're in a tough spot because even now, the Mandalorian brand has been to totally tarnished. Totally tarnished. I think for diehards like us, you know, we're we're kind of over it. But again, you just like you just look at the ratings for season three and it's still bumping in terms of widespread mainstream appeal. Yeah. Um, all right, let's uh Golden Globes. I think uh Robert Downey Jr. won best sporting, Killian won best actor. Emma Stone won Best Actress. I'm, uh, Have you seen Poor Things? I still haven't seen it. No, I've not seen Poor Things. And uh, D Divine Joy Randolph won Best Supporting Actress. Um, what is your feeling on award season? Is, is it going to be an Oppenheimer sweep? or? So I, I think uh, Oscars are super interesting. I'm really, really personally hoping, just zoomed out, that Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse gets a Best Picture nom and not just a Best oh, Actress. Wow film nom uh we've had toy story 3 and up nominated for best picture before so there is a precedent and frankly particularly at this 
cultural moment where every year we're like, how do we save the Oscars? It's not necessarily saving, but the more popular films you nominate for Best Picture that are deserving, that's important, you know, the more popular the telecast is most likely going to be. And I think Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse checks a lot of those boxes. Uh, in terms of Will Oppenheimer's sweep, it's obviously crushed across awards season thus far. But I think it's my vote for Best Picture. I've even bet on it. Uh, you have a vote? No, I, w I wish I had a vote. That'd uh -huh. be awesome. That'd be awesome. No, but you know, my my personal vote. But I think often, often in, in the last, you know, several years, what we've seen is the quote unquote favorite get upset either by, you know, the second favorite, which in this probably is Barbie, or like the outsider prestige film that people love. Like in this instance, it's the holdovers. I think those are the three that are really vying for the realistic shot. And, uh, you know, talking to a few industry people, a lot of people obviously love Oppenheimer, but I, I have seen a lot of surging support for uh, the holdovers lately, which is a phenomenal film. I, I would not be upset at that one either. I mean, I saw that. I thought it was great. Uh, did it live up to the hype that I had for it? No, it did not. That's probably because its hype was virtually everybody saying, this is a perfect movie. So like, that's pretty hard to live up to. I just, look, holdovers is great, right? Uh, Pain is great. Giamatti is great. And best picture, you know, if you go back through the last 10 years, you look at these films i think you've done this a lot you're like how many of these are actually right and <laughs> usually they're not right but i feel like oppenheimer is one of those movies that regardless of who you are as soon as you see it, you're like this is going to be talked about in 10 years still and it's like if they figure out a way to fuck that up then i don't think they, that and then i truly don't think they know what the fuck they're doing because yeah. Sorry. Keep going. No, no, no 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 because i was gonna say like the holdovers in a regular year Sure, fine. But when you have Oppenheimer not only be such a technical and critical achievement, but also like introduce potentially a new era of sort of box office understanding, like I don't, I, I just don't see how that's not the obvious eyes shut choice. You know, analyst entertainment strategy guy who also actually made the case for Spider Man Across the Spider Verse, which I've been banging that drum for a few months. Um, he said something really smart in a recent uh, newsletter of his. And he's that, you know, on the website, the Academy Awards say the best picture is supposed to reward cinematic achievement. That's the quote, cinematic achievement. And he thinks that in recent years, the idea of what cinematic achievement is has become very, very narrow to the Academy. And I think he's right. And I think something like Oppenheimer is a good example of widespread cinematic achievement across both the artistry and the craftsmanship, but also the context of the year. A three-hour R-rated, essentially legal drama for, for, you know, lack of a better genre breakdown, earned $955 million at a time when everyone is questioning the viability of theatrical movie going. Like, how can we not reward that and, and acknowledge what a huge accomplishment that was in a very challenged landscape? And also what a massive brand Chris Nolan has become unto himself. Well, that's why I think he's probably locked in for director, right? Locked. Because locked. yeah, yeah. First I mean, of his career. Yeah. So so that's so there's that. And that what it what worries me about the Oscars every year is that I find they vote for narrative. That's why, well, look, Parasite was the best film of that year, but it was considered a surprise at the time. People didn't see it coming. Everybody thought it was gonna be 1917. I knew it was gonna go down like that because you couldn't pass up that chance, right? Then a few years later, 
you have Coda. It's kind of the same thing. There is a there is a there is a PC narrative there for them to get behind and push. What film do you think that's going to be this year? That's Barbie. As weird as that sounds, that's Barbie. You've got the sort of you've got the 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 film itself literally literalizes the female struggle, right? You've got the female producers and stars, director, and so on and so forth. It's the highest grossing film of the year. It's the first film to be directed by a woman to gross a billion, I believe. So you have all those combined, and that to me is a narrative that the Academy would absolutely slurp up. You know, I like Barbie. I, I give it a really <laughs> strong B+. Yeah. I just, I like the holdovers and I like Oppenheimer more. I think Barbie was just outside of my top 10 for my 2023 list, but still a, a movie I really enjoyed, a movie I'm looking forward to re-watching one of these weekends. I, I just think Oppenheimer has a, a, a stronger all-around film, as does the, the holdovers. Whereas like some of the slapstick uh, departures in... Barbie, you know, such as that that office chase scene really brings me out of the moment. There there was like two or three scenes where I'm like, I really feel pulled out of this. Though, again, I, I think, you know, a, a worthy screenplay uh, uh, contender. I think Greta Gerwig has to be nominated for Best Director again after Lady Bird. I mean, to come, to come out of the gate three for three in your first three films as a feature director, and all three of those films are bangers. It's just really impressive. I love Greta Gerwig. I'll watch yeah. anything she does. Um, and, and Lucky Chat Productions that has consistently championed really kind of interesting, unique takes and fresh ideas. Like she as a producer has a great eye for something that's different and, and hits the marketplace at the right time. Yeah, it's very um, Brad Pitt and Plan B-esque. Happy and way for Leo. Um, I, I guess last one here. What um, what do you think about Tom Cruise going to uh, Warner Bros.? You know, it's it is interesting because he's obviously made his home at Paramount for for thirty plus years. Uh, it is a non exclusive agreement. I want to keep reminding people of that because that seems to be in the film Twitter discourse a uh, very overlooked fact. So he will still continue to work on the next Mission Impossible. He will, you know, as of now, still work on the Universal space film. Uh, he can work on you know other things. I, I think obviously it's a it's a big get for Warner Brothers, but one thing I haven't seen in any article breaking it down is Tom Cruise is in his sixties. He's he's it's, I think he's sixty two, something like that. Let me see. Let me see exactly how old Tom Cruise is. I think he's not quite there yet. I think he's, he's sixty one. 61. You know, obviously wow. he's gonna continue to make big budget explosive movies. Obviously, he, he really hasn't lost a step, but I think people are thinking that this is going to set Warner Brothers up to really be the champion once again for years to come. How many more years does Tom Cruise have as the action guy? I, I don't think he's got too many. That doesn't mean he can't return to some of his prestige projects that he really chased after in the late 80s and 90s, which he was very good at. I mean, Born on the Fourth of July, Rain Man, Jerry Maguire, fantastic performances. Uh, I think he's definitely got a best supporting nod still in him for, for a, a really cool kind of you know, older Tarantino, man. Come on, yes, I'm waiting on fun. you. I've been saying this. But I, I don't know if it's as seismic as people are saying, just because of the longevity questions I have. He still is undoubtedly, undisputedly, like the number one movie star in the world and maybe the last movie star in the world. So yeah. believe me, I, I get the attention, but I, I just think people should take slightly longer view than just like, oh, he's going to give him three good years and then yeah. crap out. All right, Pete, before we move on, do you want to share your top five of either 2023 or 2024? My top three, my top five movies? 
So yeah, t- yeah, top five films of 2023 and the ones that you're most hyped for this Let's, year. I think uh, top five. Let me if I can. Here, I I, uh, I could send you your tweet if you want. I got it. I got it. So I had Oppenheimer at number one, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse at number two, uh, The Holdovers at number three, Past Lives at number four, and American Fiction at number five. John Wick Chapter Four close at number six. I love that movie. And uh, I don't have a list of of 2024 movie releases in front of me. Unfortunately, I probably should have brought that up. Nah, but like Mickey, Mickey 17, like you said, is up there. Dune Part Two, of course, is up there. Uh, what else is? What else are some of the big movies coming out this year? I mean, Deadpool Three is a basic, of course. Yeah, I I I forget my list now entirely. I just know that my number one film has been taken off the schedule, so that's cool. Hopefully, hopefully, like you said, it gets it gets back on. Maybe they want to treat it like a, a like an August summer release. It's like, hey, we've got a lot of room. It's kind of blockbuster esque in the sci fi way. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, let's swing over to my interviews. How do I want to lay these out? All right, first we'll do Vincent D'Onofrio, then we'll do David Ayer, and then we'll do Jake Johnson. Hey man. I want to start easy. It seemed like you had a lot of fun on this film, and I'm curious if that's something that becomes more important to you as your career goes on. Um, it's a good question. I don't know. Maybe. Um, I feel like there's there's a lately there's been some pretty intense parts that I've been playing like the one I do for Marvel and stuff, it's, it's always nice to try and find something where I can just approach it from a completely different place. I think that also has a lot to do with it, like uh, why something might seem lighter or more off the wall kind of stuff, you know? I en- enjoy that. My life is more like that than it is, you know, like the bad guys. You're saying that, that you don't act like uh no Kingpin in, in your day to day life? I, I That's disappointing. surprisingly enough, <laughs> I do not. You know, just because something's fun though, it doesn't mean it's not a uh challenge. So I'm curious, how does a role like this challenge you in ways that like you just said, one of your more serious roles might not? Well, with this kind of thing it's um with with this director, F. Gary, you know, he he wants you to make the character uh, specific and, and, and different than the other characters. And he did that with everybody, not just me. And so he, he allows you the freedom. He, he wants you to have freedom and take chances, you know. And uh, so it, that helps a lot. It's uh, and so the 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 task at hand is to figure out how you're going to do it, and then you know figure out how it can actually help service the story, and and rather than not. So developing the characters the way they would look, the way they would sound, I think was was the challenge. Um, it's. Uh, it's always a fun. It's always fun for me to 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 kind of begin to execute the characters that I planned on playing, or the character that I planned on playing, and uh, to see how it's going to work, how it's not going to work, and and stuff like that. So those that that 
bit was challenging on this too. Um, but you know, mostly because of the rest of the cast, there was a lot of chemistry between us naturally. So I felt I felt very comfortable with this cast just exploring. Um, even when my character was just being normal, the normal man that he was, I, I, I felt very comfortable just exploring anything I wanted to at any given time. And that has a lot to do with the trust and the the relationships between the rest of the cast and myself. I uh, saw you t- from a few years back tell Rich Eisen about how you had a flat in London. And I'm curious if the British version of Denton was based on anyone that you had known at that time. <laughs> um, he was a combination of a few people. It's a combination. I won't give names. He was a combination of a, a director and um, an actor that that I huh. that I've known. I um, what, do you have a favorite heist film? And if so, how did you you let that influence how you played this part? Um, only in that I, there's several heist films that I've watched, I think it's a great genre. And um, it always has been for, for many, many years in cinema, you know? And I think that uh, it's a part of, of crime drama that, that really doesn't get, doesn't have a, really have a place other than in cinema. You know, there's thrillers, there's mysteries that can be done on stage and stuff, but a heist film um, works in cinema really well. And, so there's been a lot of them, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, all the way up till now. You know, it's uh, so, and they always seem to work in some way. I mean, that kind of structure seems to work, and you know, some are better because than others because it allows you to root for bad guys and not feel bad about it. Well, yeah, there's that, there's that, but there's also this kind of thing. You know, there's only a certain type. There's only a couple of genres that we know really well as people. And we allow it to fool us every time, even we know it's a movie. You know, a heist movie is one of those kind. Adventure movies are like that, and science fiction movies are like that. But a heist movie is very distinct because it's not really a science fiction film. It's a real film with real people most of the time, right? So, um, but we still, as an audience, like we do with comedies, we let ourselves be fooled. We let ourselves think, oh, they might not get away with this. But we know in the end they are going to get away with it, you know. And and yeah. and so the, it's 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 one of those very particular kinds of uh, genres. This is a big one. If you could steal any role for yourself in the entirety of film, <laughs> what what would it be and why? Like, if there's just one part that you think to yourself, man, I would have loved to play that. Oh God, that's a that's a horrible question to have to answer. <laughs> I'm sorry. Because, you know I'm what sorry. I mean? Because if well, only because um, if I like it, that means I like it because of the actor's performance, really. Because you know, right? Because I don't really, I don't remember ever reading a script that somebody else did, and I now want to steal it from them. You know what I mean? So it's a, it's a difficult question. Um, I've always uh, there's a thing that Alec Guinness did when he was younger called the Laughing Detective. I've always wanted to... Uh, oh, I think I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah, I think I've heard of yeah, that. Yeah, it's a particular part. Um, uh, when I was younger, I would have liked to have done a movie like Peter O'Toole did, and there's a movie called The Ruling Class, which is uh, it's right up my alley when it comes to the, the kind of performance it takes to pull off that particular character that Peter O'Toole played. 
If you ever have a chance to see the ruling class, you'll understand exactly what I mean. It's a tour de force when it comes to a, a character actor. So yeah, there are, there's, there's parts like that. As I said, I watched you speak to uh, Eisen and you were explaining how you got your role in full metal jacket by sending a tape to Kubrick. And I'm curious, do you think a young actor would even be able to pull something like that off today? And what do you think your answer says about the current state of the business? I think it's tougher for actors, but um, because of the whole videoing yourself, taping yourself stuff. But that, 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 that video that I sent Stanley Kubrick was a self-tape. You know, we had to go and rent the camera. The cameras were about like this big back then. They were like, and then and we also had to rent a deck with it. It was like this enormous thing. It cost uh, us, cost me more money than I could afford at the time just to rent it for a few hours. And, um, you know, we set it up and I did this monologue that I was doing from uh, a play that I was doing at the time. So it was kind of like a self-tape. You know, um, yes, I was fully committed. My performances there was was fully committed. And then I sent that one. And then he sent me. He called me a couple of weeks later and asked me that he told me that he sent me some words and to put it on tape again, to put it, the words that he had sent me on tape, which I did. And so again, that was another self tape. There was nobody helping. It was me and my friend Steve Marshall. There was nobody directing. There was nobody. Just just us, the two of us. Um, we were going by the manual on the camera because we rented it from a, a camera place. And uh, we just shot it. I did like 10 takes of the words that he sent. Um, and, and again, I was fully committed. So, you know, my daughter's an actress, Layla George. Um, her career is about to take off, I believe. And, and uh, I've helped her with self-tapes where I'm the voice, you know, of the other actor. I really that's think that's very cool to like pass that down, you know. Well, yeah, especially because she's doing well. She's very talented, so that makes me very happy. Um, the the so the so the idea of this of it being different, it is the but the amount of times that actors have to do it, go on self tape and and not meet anybody before they do that, is a little crazy, and it must be very difficult. I I have sympathy for them. But in the end, if you, you know, if you want a good shot at a part, you have to be fully committed, and you can't let anything stand in the way of yourself, and you can't, you can't let um, the, tri the tribulations of, um, of doing a self-tape uh, keep you from doing a great performance, if you have one in you. And, um, but I cannot imagine how to... I, like, I would have no idea how to get an agent like actors, young actors come up to me all the time and ask me, and I have to tell them the truth. It's so different, you know. I literally used to put my foot in the door when people were about to close it, you know. <laughs> you know, you could knock on doors and give people your picture and say, hey, I'll do a monologue for you right now. You know, I used to sit in offices in front of casting directors while the, like, while the office was running. Uh, people wanted, you know, walking all around, and then I would sit in, in a chair in front of this desk of this casting director, and I would do a monologue. You know, like that's how you know I got my first play. That's how I got um, my first agent. It was that way, and um, 
Well, that's why he, I have you nothing, say that. It I have nothing me. to give them these days. I have nothing, no advice I can give them other than to do whatever you can to get your foot in the door, even if it's just a metaphor these days, you know. It, it, it just struck me because of the, the, the breadth of work you've done. You've done tentpole stuff. You've been on a long-running TV show. You've been in prestige dramas. So you've literally seen it all. So I'm just curious, like, how how it feels to watch the business you're in change drastically while you're in it. And now that the move that you pulled to get the role that changed your career, pulling that move these days is not as possible as it was one, once was, I don't think, because I'm trying to picture like Martin Scorsese or Chris Nolan just like taking a tape from somebody that they've never heard of. And I don't even know if that happens today anymore, you know? Yeah, I hear you. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I do hear stories that are similar to mine still every once in a while. Like I do yeah. hear stories where actors and actresses have just been plucked out of never doing anything before and gotten parts because they, because the director saw their tape. And, yeah. you know, like I just finished working with, um, this actress, Alequa Cox in this kind of, this new Marvel show that's coming out. I just got those today. I yeah. can't wait to watch the yeah. screeners. Yeah, it's coming out January 10th. The the her, she's never did anything before Hawkeye, you know. And I worked with her on on Hawkeye as well as other people. She's a badass. Yeah, yeah, and she's you know this this she just got cast out of nowhere, you know, so to speak, you know. So so you had brought up uh, Daredevil. Have you seen the new scripts at all yet? I they had brought on a new team. Yeah, I cannot answer that at all. It was a nice try. He did well. I'll give you that. But I cannot speak about that at all. We are, we are in the middle of, uh, of, of the production, and it's coming out great, and we're putting everything we can into it and trying to get it right, no matter how long it takes us to do that. And so... Um, what's going on right now is just uh, Charlie Cox and I are just extremely happy with what's happening. And um, like, I'm right in the middle of that, of, of playing Wilson Fisk, that character. So, um, so I'm stuck between, I'm stuck in this place where I know everything about it, but can't say a word. Well, let me just say, I'm very psyched for you because you're, passion for this character and this world was so clear. So, and how much legwork you did to make sure that it got to the point it's at, I think is, is, is something as a fan, it's inspiring to see the passion on your side as much as we have it on, on ours. Um, yeah. I'm gonna it's, keep it's, to I feel the same way, actually. You know, the passion from you all, from the fans and stuff, is, is what keeps Charlie and I going. I speak for Charlie about that because we talk about it all the time. We know that we have to get it right, and that's how it's always been with these characters for us, and, and it is for most of the people who play Marvel characters. But I think for Charlie and I, for the, with the Netflix, the original Netflix show, um, you know, we, we, the more the fans were saying, get it right, get it right, we were like, okay, okay, like, you know, they, it helps. It helps us a lot. It inspires us a lot. Echo is the first in the Marvel Spotlight series, which I think is, is, uh, has been a long time coming. And again, I'm not trying to, like, gotcha at all so if you want to pass pass do you know if daredevil is going to be under that same banner or oh for sure 
Oh, I mean, okay, cool. That's, cool, cool. that's my opinion. I would imagine that it would be. I mean, nobody has said, hey, did you know this? This is happening? No, no nobody's said that. But it, it, is, it is the same, uh, of the same tone and feel. And, and, then, and, uh, and the, you know, oh. that, the attention that the big bosses are, are given to it is extraordinary. And um, we, Charlie and I are, 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 are just amazed at how much they care about this series. And, and, and it's, uh, I can't imagine it be, being treated any less. I, um, uh, I just lost my train. Of- oh. Right. I had brought up that there was a new team brought on, Benson and Moorhead. Do you do you know their films? Oh, I had whoa. loved their work whoa, for yeah. a while. Yeah. And yeah. then they had just come in and blew people away with Loki. So I'm curious. And Moon Knight. What about and Moon Knight? What about and and Moon Knight, of course. To be fair, though, I was a bit more partial to to Loki, well, but that's me. I'm a huge Loki fan, so yeah, I get it. So what about their work and their style? Gets you really excited and jacked up. They're just really clever dudes. You know, they're just really clever director writers. You know, um, they're just awesome guys. You know, you there's you just know it when you when you feel like you're working with the right person. And um, I've been in the business long enough to know when I'm not and and know when I am. And so it's uh, with these two guys. You, you know, I feel like I know. I know what's going to happen. It's what what is happening is fantastic. Uh, all right, I'm going to spare you from Marvel stuff and shift over. Uh, you you were in the eyes of Tammy Faye last year. Yeah. Jessica Chastain, of course, won a much deserved and long awaited Best Actress. I I just want to know if you remember the first day that you saw her on set in the full kind of makeup garb and 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 what that made you think and feel. Yeah, you know, it's the same feeling you get when I've seen anybody that I treasure as an actor, you know, like like I do Jessica, you know. When they're in the middle of doing their work, like you just want to, you're just so happy that they're doing the kind of work that they are, you know, and uh, and you know that they have... It's so good to see people behind them and and encouraging them to do the kind of work and letting them have these amazing ideas and bring what they think the character is forward and so and, and then the makeup itself is 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 it's it's wonderful to see them deal with it and uh, you know I've been in those situations before so I know what it's like and um, you know it, it's uh, it, you know. If you've been acting a long time, like I have, and you see new actors around that are just extraordinary in their talent, like Jessica is, you know. I mean, she's not particularly new right now, but she's, in my eyes, she's, she's getting these kind of, she has this kind of brand new kind of career, I think is amazing. And uh, it's just so impressive. I, I just get, the, uh, I get as impressed, I think, as anybody else would, you know. While you were not willing to tell me who you based your London voice of, I have a feeling, just seeing you tweet over the years, who your character in Tammy Faye might have been pulling from just a bit. Do you? 
well, you know, a general sort of <laughs> idea. Vincent, I've got to wrap here. Thank you so much for your time. Congrats nice. on, as I said, not only a long and successful but diverse career. It's really, really impressive, sir. Hey, I appreciate it, dude. Thanks, man. Today I am joined by David Ayer, director of films such as End of Watch, Fury, and his new movie, The Beekeeper, which hits theaters on January 12th. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Thanks for having me. First of all, awesome sweater. That's, that's <laughs> just first things first. Um, I just love a good sweater. It's uh, winter, I man. Find that mo- <laughs> I, I find that most of your leads are men who have just been ground down by the harsh realities of the world and are... desperately trying to reach the light men who straddle darkness what is it about this arc that that appeals to you so much and why do you think it's so cinematic well it's i think it's like you know people that go out in the world and you know whether it's law enforcement or military you know people that deal with with violence or people that deal with kind of the, the harsher realities I don't know if you can do that work without it affecting you. And and there's kind of a nobility in somebody that, you know, exposes themselves, acts as society's antibodies, you know, to bad things on our behalf. I, I just think that there, there's a built-in drama there to explore. And, and how does Jason, because we all know the physical tools he has, but what about his sort of work as a performer, do you think, adds these kind of parts i mean that's the thing so jason is you know he's a martial artist he's an athlete he's he's a fighter he is someone who does his own stunts his own stunt work and bringing all that to the table was was interesting for me a lot of times when you shoot these action sequences you know you're trying to cut around the photo double you're trying to cut around a stunt double you know get the real actor's face in it's almost like you're shooting the scene twice and and with jason it was really about just finding the best storytelling shots within choreography. And that, that's a real gift. I think, I think he spoiled me in that regards. And then you add his iconic nature as, as a stunt performer, as a fighter, as an actor, in his encyclopedic knowledge of cinematic history, of action history. He can literally tell you every punch ever thrown in a movie. Um, it's just kind of unbelievable. So I always bring my A game to set. And I learned from Jason that there's actually like an A-plus game when it comes to action. That's how he's done it for so long, man. You don't stay that good for that long if you're not a serious, serious man. Yeah. Uh, you, you said that he does his own stunts. I know he does his own fight stunts. Did he do his own B stunts? So the bees were real. The bees were not CG. And he actually went with a beekeeper and he learned the entire process. He learned how to manage the hive and pull the comb out and, and harvest honey. So it, it was interesting because... You know, we're so used to seeing him as being this stoic, you know, strong, aggressive person. And, and here he is in this very grounded, natural kind of Zen space. And, and that was important to me because I wanted to show him in a more um, humanistic and accessible way. I'm curious at what stage he gets involved with it. Because, like, is the role conceived with him in mind? Because I'm sure once you land Statham, an entire world of options are now at your doorstep. So uh, uh, I, I guess I'm curious, did you write this role? Did you create this part for him? Or if not, at what stage did he come on? And then did you add more shit? Because you're like, hell yeah, I've got Jason now. <laughs> so Kurt Wimmer wrote the script. And 
and he's friends with Jason, and they kind of worked on Adam Clay together, the character together. And then I got the script. I'm like, amazing mythology check, amazing characters check, an amazing storyline that just keeps growing and getting better check. So I have to do this movie. I want to work with Jason. And then for me as a director, it really came about how do I take you know this this paper document and turning in turn into moving pictures and do it on time and on budget and with Jason. So it's, it's always a challenge, you know, to make any movie. But in this case, I had a great script to work from and, and just an amazing actor, again, who just taught me so much about action and filmmaking. I'm always learning. Did he push you in ways that you had never been pushed before as a filmmaker? And if so, how? Yeah, I think so. I think especially with the action, because I, I think it, because he's doing it himself, because, you know, he's, he's the money, he's the face, it's his chin in the ring, you know, he's going to take the hits if it's bad, you know, so he's all about getting to the best place possible. We had Jeremy Marinas, um, who he's worked with before, and and who I love working with from the 8711, um, school uh, of stunts and those guys are at the cutting edge are those the the john wick guys yeah yeah so he's he's yeah, chad's yeah. protege and 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 just a really gifted fight choreographer and he also swung cameras for me for second unit and it's a long process there's a lot of choreography there's rehearsals there's you video the rehearsals you cut the video together you experiment with camera angles so it's it's really an intricate process to get to where things are on screen what, what are some of your all-time favorite revenge flicks, and did you try to work into any homages to those films in yours? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I always like Taken. Taken's a great movie. Um, you know, I think Which it's... Which I actually just rewatched that a month or so ago. It holds up, man. It holds up, and, and, it, and it's all about detail. It's all about, you know, creating a world, and, and that's kind of what I wanted to bring to Beekeeper, was making sure that it was a little more than just, you know... Something happened, hero activates, beats up bad guys. I wanted mm -hmm. a message. I wanted an emotional heart, you know. And so having that sort of slow boil opening with Felicia Rashad and having her take advantage of, and, and she's clearly a good person and a good soul, taken advantage of by some very bad people, and then connecting Jason to that and him seeing the result of it was a great way I think, to, to kind of elevate the action genre. Something that you did in this film that I thought was effective as hell, and I don't even know if you meant to do this, I found the background callers to be the most evil people in the whole film. They made my skin crawl with their vapes and their outfits. They made my skin crawl more than anybody else. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely, you know, a nod towards kind of crypto bro culture. <laughs> <laughs> Good. They deserve it. <laughs> um, so if you had to pick one of your film characters to come save your ass, would Beekeeper be number one? And if not, which one would be? It would be Beekeeper. That's that's an easy one. Like, it doesn't matter where he has to get into, what he faces, who he has to defeat. He's, he's going to figure it out and he's going to look pretty good doing it. David, I want to now move on to one of my favorite films of all time. Fury. Oh, right. On. Truly. Oh. One of my favorites, I think it's one of the best post-saving Ryan War films we have, which is a huge mountain to climb. I think your film comes as close as I've seen, and there's tons that I would love to talk about. But the top of my list is the scene, I think about this scene a few times a year, is when Shia re recites the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Yeah. It is such a pure 
distillation of brotherhood and bravery and and uh, um, vulnerability in the most harrowing of times. It's just, I get chills just to think think about it. So I'm curious, what memories do you have from filming that scene pop in your head? Because something that I think about a lot is, despite the fact that you've got movie stars like Brad Pitt and John Bernthal giving it their all, Shia kind of shows up and blows them off the screen. So that's what I think about. So what do you think about when I bring up that scene? It's, it's honestly, it's tough because the, we did so much rehearsal and so much work and those guys bonded so close, closely. And there was such a, a powerful energy, a powerful human energy and connection and so much, and the emotion, to me, it was real. It was like experiencing that, and you know, knowing their fate, knowing where they were going to end up ultimately, in the story, and how, and and you know, the film was always about the idea of you do your duty no matter what, um, even if it comes at the ultimate personal sacrifice, because without that kind of sacrifice, the world would be a lot worse place than it is, and. So it's it's something very bittersweet when you see, you know, that amazing performance crystallize. You know, it's 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 it was a heavy thing. It was it was very heavy, but it was also very beautiful. And you know that that moment has actually become kind of a touchstone in the U.S. military, and people really harken back to that and and have found a lot of inspiration from that sense of selflessness that it represents. Well, I want to, that's why I want to ask, I'm sure you've been asked this before, so I'm sorry if it's a bit lame. Is best job we ever had, is that a actual thing that they said? Or is that something that you guys made up? I mean, it's it's something we, we did for the movie, you know, and then it just caught on. <laughs> Dude, and I have got to say, and I, tell me about the Eureka moment. I, I'm not sure exactly what your role was in the script, so again, forgive me for that, but... The eureka moment of having Brad Pitt chime in being like, I know that exact verse. It is such a masterstroke of writing that sort of ties in the bond of the characters, but also the wiseness of Brad Pitt, where you're like, that's why he leads them. So talk to me about how that sort of all came to be there. I mean, it's, you know, I wrote the script, uh, only writer, original, um, okay. came from a lot, a lot, a lot of research, a lot of understanding, a lot of, um, you know, I read a lot of unit diaries, I read a lot of individual diaries, talked to a lot of veterans and looked for, um, you know, kind of the through lines and, and Brad, Brad's character is interesting because the wars changed him so much. He knows he can never go home and, and his strength and his role of being the father of this family and keeping this family together and alive, you know, even at his own demise. And, and there is a sense, I think, of, of relief in that character, knowing that his trials are going to be over. And Shia plays it so well. It's Shia's reaction made me feel like he was genuinely hearing that for the first time, like his shock. And he's like, man, you're something else. He just, David, that is one of my favorite scenes of all time. I really do do mean that, sir. I appreciate um, that. Thank you. So I know that these films aren't shot in sequential <laughs> order, but I'm curious. You know, I'm sure the execs... Is this a Sony film? Who? 
Uh, Beekeeper Who, uh, or the or Fury? no 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 Fury Fury yeah yeah Sony distributed it yeah Sony so I imagine in their mind they're like oh we've got Brad Pitt World War II movie awesome. And the first scene is Brad Pitt stabbing a guy in the fucking eyeball. So I'm curious, like, if you remember sending them the dailies of that and what the response to that was when you were like, by the way, here's how it starts. No, they were, they were great collaborators, and, and they, they knew the movie I was making. And, you know, they came to set and they visited, and they were actually really wonderful. Um, you know, everybody knew what we were making and, and had kind of a common um, compass point to move towards. Uh, and just l- last one here on Fury. What moment, other than the one that we touched on before, it could be something you filmed, it could be in pre or post, where the genuine bond that those four or five men made really just washed over you? It was the first day. You know, the first day was wow. that scene of them. Um, the first day we shot was a scene of them driving into the division area of that giant set, you know, in, in, uh, in the beginning of the film. And watching them in the tank and then we'd film the scene of the of kind of the base camp and meeting norman and everything and i'm I'm looking around and i don't know how many extras we had how many background players we had it was a lot and everything was period realistic everything was absolutely correct to the time and it was all encompassing and immersive and ankle deep mud and i'm looking around and they just felt like they grew out of that mud and were just an integral part of that world. And they felt so connected and they didn't have to say a word and you could feel it. And that's, that's when I knew the movie was going to work and be special. I can't believe it's going to be 10 years since that in a few months. It's I'm sorry to crazy. remind you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't like, I never look um, at my watch. <laughs> uh, so I love to ask this of folks who are involved in something genuinely great. You, of course, wrote training day i was born in 1993 so the entirety of my movie conscious life training day has been iconic it is a fabric of american pop culture in multiple ways so the same thing kind of do you have a specific moment where it occurred to you maybe it was the first time you saw denzel yell king kong ain't got shit up but like when did it hit you or it could be when denzel won the award when did it hit you when you were like did i just make a generational movie here you know what i mean I think it was like when when Denzel won the Academy Award. Um, you know that that was a pretty wild moment. But it, it's there, there was a sense of magic happening when we made it um, that no one had gone into the LA streets like that. No one had brought a film crew into that world, into the truth of it, into those spaces. And and Antoine's you know steady understanding and and love and respect to those characters and you know Mauro's photography you could see it in the dailies you could see something magic is happening and you know you make movies and you really never know how they're going to come together it, it's it's always a alchemical. you know more than most sir <laughs> yeah it's it's like you never know and it's just the way it appealed to everybody not just like like street dudes but like everybody you know, it's, I don't even know how you beat that. It's like, yeah. it's like my best work, my best script, um, you know, and, and it came from such a place of like struggle and truth in me. Well, I read that thing that you posted back in 2021 about where you came from and where that film came from. And, yeah. and I read that and I find it 
what you said, put your, cause I'm trying to write too. And yeah. put your pain on, on the page felt like such a, uh, just a, a little slice of brilliance. And when I think about that film, I could totally see that. It's like, it's like grabbing an electric cable, you know, you know, it's going to hurt, but you got to hold on to it. You got to take the shock and, and yeah. then articulate that into words. And, you know, that one took a minute to write and I never thought it would get made. And I kept hearing, you know, oh, you don't know anything about cops. That's not how cops are. And no one was really making cop movies at the time. And it just, it went against kind of everything everybody knew in the business in that moment, yet somehow transcended. So I, um, journalists who ask things just to make headlines kind of make me sick. And you <laughs> recently tweeted that you are done with DC. So I want to remain respectful of you. If you don't want to go down that road, totally fine with me. I've got tons of end of watch stuff here to ask too. But I, I have some hopefully genuinely nuanced things that yeah, I would hit, like to hit ask. Hit me, you. hit me. What do you think the powers that be misunderstood either about your film or the Suicide Squad at large? Because I personally think the biggest issue was that franchise was the audience not was the studio not understanding the audience's relationship to these characters. And I think that that issue is epitomized in the dichotomy between what your first trailer was and what the film wound up being. So what do you think they missed the most? It, 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 I don't think it wasn't a matter of, of missing or not understanding what it was. Um, it, it was not trusting what I made to be commercially viable. And because they panicked. They panicked. Marvel freaked them out and they lost their shit. Yep. I mean, that's, that's, that's definitely a way of putting it. Um, so <laughs> to change the DNA, to try and turn a drama into a comedy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's going to be a little blood on the floor when you do it. And, you know, my issue with it is they grabbed me and used me as a bullet shield <laughs> and no one has ever stepped up to acknowledge that or say it was wrong and a lot of the uh problematic issues with the film they released are endemic to their cut and so it's like if you cut out the redeeming part of the story and only leave things that in the absence of context appear problematic and then let the international press attack the filmmaker every time you release new IP in the space and even almost felt like a point of marketing, that's, that's an abuse of power. Mm. And it, it hurt and wounded me, and I discovered that by being silent, by being the silent victim, that I was only being re-injured because it kept coming up again and coming up again. And it gave people this idea of who I am that couldn't be further from the truth. And I'm still kind of paying for it today. So for me, it's just, it's, it's just a basic injustice. And... And, and, and it keeps going. It's just like, like I want to move on. Uh, and that's why I hate to broach it, but I do feel like if it could be spoken about with a genuine sense of nuance, it's worth 
yeah. talking about. I do have to. I, I do have to wrap here, and I w- want to say I read the letter that you posted in 2021. I listened to you talk to John Bernthal yeah. about the whole thing. I've seen your tweets th- throughout the years. The grace with which you would handle this is rare. I want any movie fan out there to be aware that the way in which you have gone about this is is top class, A plus, and it has made me root for you harder than ever before, sir. Right on. I mean, and that's the thing. It didn't. It didn't come from malice. It didn't come from. It just. It just came from fear. And everyone's kind of, you know, doing their best and making things up as they go in this business. And everyone's making, you know, the best choices they can at that time, you know. And yeah. and for me, just a little bit of love and acknowledgement that, that maybe, you know, it wasn't the right move would, would go a long it's way. Coming. <laughs> it's taken a long time, but I think it's coming. David, your new film, The Beekeeper, hits theaters on January 12th for any man, woman who likes to see Jason Statham kick ass, which I'm sure there are a lot of you out there. This is for you. Please go see it in theaters. This thing was made for theaters. It's like two hours of escape. The world isn't the greatest place right now, but if you want to forget about it and like actually have fun and enjoy a movie and, and remember the magic that movies inspire in us, go, please go see Beekeeper. David, thank you for your time and congrats on an awesome career, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. I am joined by Jake Johnson. You know him as an actor, but today I am talking about his directorial debut, Self-Reliance. But first, Jake, I've got a problem. My podcast is not as successful as yours, so I was curious if you could help me out. Yes. You know, that's a, you're coming to the We're Here to Help. You're starting with a question. What, what's the problem, sir? You need a more successful pod? Yeah, so i hoping that I could just start Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man right at the top to make some news. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> You're gunning. You're gunning. I love it. No, so uh, question number one. Do you feel like you relate to Bradley Cooper and Ben Affleck and Clint Eastwood now more than you ever have? Well, you know, we're all part, we're all the best of friends. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, you know, we all get together and just chat and hang out and uh, do our Pelotons together. No, I'm done uh, fucking around with you, man. So I, I... I am curious, what are some of your favorite sort of manhunt greatest game films? The one that come to mind for me are The Running Man, Fincher's The Game, The Hunger Games, kind of. So I'm curious what some of those touchstones for you are. You know, more so for me was um, um, there was a Japanese reality show. I think it was the late 90s, early 2000s about a guy who a comedian who won the award and was awarded on the show and he was put in his in an apartment. And they stripped off all his clothes and they filmed everything. And then he soon realized that there was no food. And the only way he could get food and clothes was to win it from uh, uh, newspaper ads and like magazine clippings and, you know, call in radio shows. And the fun of the show was he was a really funny, likable character, but he was starving. And he was going through a really intense, you know, experience that was fun for the audience, but not fun for him. And I remember when I, my friends and I first started discovering these shows and talking about them, I thought culturally that was so wild to push somebody to a degree where we all know they're not happy, but it is really good entertainment. And so that was more of the desire to do this than those other movies, although I loved all those other movies. I do love a movie where, you know, Hunger Games I really liked. 
You said that that was in uh, Japan? Yeah. Because they have this huge show where they send kids out to the store to yes, like. 100% right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, what the hell? Yeah, these shows are crazy, they, but they're so they do, entertaining. They, there was a whole channel there. They do wild stuff. They push. Yeah. I mean, nowadays, Mr. Beast is doing all those things in a day. Right. But that but that type of human experiment of like to to two people in a warehouse and have them not leave for a month. When those first ideas started coming up 20 years ago, it was blowing my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the first things that comes up in the film is the Lonely Island title card as they yeah. produce the film. I'm curious about your relationship with those guys and how the partnership on this came to be. Did you call up Sandberg and be like, yo, dude, I've got a hilarious idea. I'm going to scream. I'm going to kill Andy Sandberg a bunch in this movie. <laughs> uh, so I've known those guys for, you know, 15 years, just kind of around doing different projects and being near each other. I'm obviously a huge fan of theirs. Uh, all three of them, Yorma, Akiva, Andy, they're all killers in their own right. And then together, they're a hell of a team. But this actually came from their executive, Ali Bell. So I had worked with Ali Bell. She used to work with Ivan Reitman, and we did No Strings Attached together. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Ali was one of the uh, producers on that movie. And she and I had, you know, just become friends on that and had been trying to find a project for years. And I sent her this script. And she liked which you it, wrote, which That's I wrote. Yep. Yes. And then she sent it to the guys. They liked it and said they would be willing to produce it. And then Andy and I had a Zoom during the pandemic, and he said uh, that he would be happy to play the character. Did you write it with with him in mind, or not originally? Originally, it was kind of could be anybody, and I was going to write for whoever it was. And so the idea it could have been, you know, I was open to ideas there. And then when Andy came on board, we had a big conversation. I got really excited about it being Andy, and then he said yes. He. <laughs> First of all, the charm of your film reminds me a lot of the charm of his Palm Springs film. Sort of that same kind of wacky, left-of-center rom-com type vibe. Yeah. Um, is But I do feel like, speaking of charm, I feel like you did have a bit of a cheat code here. Is getting Anna Kendrick to play your charming lead kind of a cheat code? Because I feel like it is. Doesn't hurt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, honestly... I as a director, what I really believe, and this is probably because I'm more of an actor, uh, is cast really matters. Mm. And I, I personally am a big believer that cast is 90% of the thing. I didn't micromanage anybody as a director. I didn't give Anna that many notes. We would have discussions about what I kind of thought about the thing. But once an actor takes control of a character, they care. Certain actors aren't ready for it. And they're really nervous and they want a lot of direction. They want to be told what to do. And they want, after a take, they look to you and they want you to tell them how to do it. Those aren't the kind of actors I get excited to work with. I like actors who read it, do their homework, have an idea and kind of come in. Biff Whiff's a great example of oh, that. Oh, dude. And he's a killer. But everything he did, you know, that was not me sitting there going, so now I need you to eat a chip. And then at this moment, as like, my note to him was, Pretend it's real life and get invested in it. And when we're in a scene, your job as an actor is to forget there's a camera and just be James and live in it. The family, Mary Holland, Emily Hampshire, Daryl Johnson. I have one about that too, yeah. Oh, I, I, I won't jump around then, but... I want to give you your props for sort of the way that you tried to uh, 
is it Biff Whiff or Whiff Biff? Biff, Biff, Whiff, Biff right? Whiff, yeah. Um, probably my favorite line in the film, and it's so naturally said. He's been like, dude, I never told you my name was. Yeah. Uh, I it was. He was like, you yeah, just yeah, started yeah. calling me that. And like, <laughs> so like that, I feel like is exactly sort of what you're trying to get at there. So there's two moments for me that uh, when I was writing that character that I thought of, I needed the, the actor to nail. It was that line where he goes, I never told you my name. My name is Walter. You just started calling me James <laughs> to nail that took like you needed to be the certain actor. And the other one was when we reveal him when I'm talking to Natalie Morales's character and he's standing there. That moment when the camera sees him needs to be a laugh as opposed to a sad moment. Yeah. And so you kind of as an actor, I needed somebody who could hit both. Yeah, for sure. Good. Um, good. I hate to ask such a basic thing, but the premise of this was so unique that I'm genuinely curious. Did this idea to you come during COVID when you were forced to spend time with a certain person for a long time? Yeah. And well, yeah, uh, who? Yeah. Yeah, who? <laughs> well, the original idea happened years before. So this was something I wanted to do as like a uh, like a mini, like whatever a mini series is called now. I forget the actual term, but whatever it gets nominated for awards, the mini anthology, something like in six, six episodes, six to eight episode season. And I wanted to do two or three of them. Gotcha. Gotcha. OK. And then I pitched it to Netflix. They passed on it and it went away. Limited then, series. Limited series. That's the word. That's I wanted to do it as a limited series. And I thought back then when Netflix and all these streamers were new that I could be on New Girl and still do those. And I could do them the way you could do like a, a movie over the summer. And then when that went, went away, I'd only seen it as a limited series. And then during the pandemic was the first time I was really feeling the themes of this movie. And I thought, I'm not going to be able to get financed for a limited series. And I'm not going to be able to get the cast I want to commit to multiple years. But if I do it as a little indie movie, I could probably get a great cast and I could probably get it financed if I'm willing to direct it and be in it and have all those check marks already filled. Because if you when you want to like get a different director, you have to attach people, you got to go through all the steps and those roadblocks become really problematic in raising money. So the family scenes felt so uniquely and starkly real yeah just tell tell me about those the mom the sister it pulled right it felt yeah, yeah. pulled straight from your life it's not your life but i'm saying like it felt like it felt like real i life. felt like i knew these people you know yeah, what I mean? same with me totally yeah. so that uh that was really important to me i originally wrote this to take place in chicago and i wanted it to feel like a regular family in the middle of America, and this is the way your family would react, and you know them. And Grace Alley, her production design, that was an abandoned old house in Pomona. The way she built that made it yeah. feel like such a real, like, For sure. grandma's house. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, honestly, for me, it's the actors. So I started with Mary Holland. Mary Holland, who plays the elder sister. Uh, so my, funny. Oh, my compliment to her is always, I feel like she's a Phil Hartman type. Mm, uh, wow. that yeah. I just really do like if you watch her work like I can't but like she's a woman who's going to have a certain moment where she takes over she could do everything like she can hit a dramatic moment she can also play broad she can also play like really crazy comedic and she could do subtle most people can do like two or three of them and so she was uh she was a first hire for me and once I had her I knew we were really great 
Then Daryl Johnson's a guy I had seen in a commercial like nine years ago. And I had tried to find him for years. And when I wrote this, I wrote it with him in mind. And this character's name used to be that guy from the commercial. And then Emily Hampshire, I found, I met her during auditions and she was just so funny that once those three came together, we would rehearse at my house. And I was honestly like, man, the three of them, this is a show. I know them. I feel them. The mom was so good. I felt like I could live in those scenes forever. Those scenes are kind of weirdly the key to the film too, because they're like the sit-in for us, right? And okay. but the but but the key to them is they have to deliver this exacerbation and yes. doubt, also with tons of love. And that's yes, not great. Yeah, and that's not, and that's not a... if that if that so there's a few scenes in the movie that I think for me were make or break scenes. And the first really, so the Andy scene for me is not a make or break scene when he comes on, because that's just funny. I was not worried about that scene at all. I was like, get Andy Samberg in a limo. It's going to be funny. He's one of those uh, guys, too, that just like, he's just funny. He's so funny. Yeah, just uh, his face, the way he carries himself, everything, his grin, everything about him is funny. When the window goes down and he says hi, because yeah. I've now seen it in the theater, but it gets a huge laugh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was not too worried about the hosts, who I think are excellent. The guys, the brothers with the right. turtlenecks. Uh, those dudes. Some those guys, Danish, oh, German. Whatever. <laughs> they're whatever they <laughs> want to be. <laughs> I'll tell you what they are. They're perfect. Uh, and they're just killers. They're so good. The costuming is so good. Their performance, their long hair together, and their accents. Yeah. I wasn't worried. The yeah. scene where I go home and tell the family for the first time and they go, oh, Andy Samberg. In order <laughs> yeah. for the audience to leave that scene and go, I'm on board, was the scariest part of making this movie. Because yeah. if they leave that and say, first of all, the family are assholes, then we're in trouble. If they leave it and say, Tommy's fully insane, then I don't think we have a movie either. So, and it can't be Tommy because Tommy just is saying what he saw. Right. So it was all on their coverage. And I was like, it was re I was really nervous. And when they were hitting it, I felt like, oh God, good actors are the best. And now um, I'm curious, did you intend for us to start to doubt you? Because mm -hmm. that's not what I expected yeah. the film to be. And when that, when you do yeah. that first scene, I was like, wait a minute, what? Yeah. It's like, yeah. Okay. I honestly, for me, I kind of wanted uh, the movie to be a lot of different things. Uh, I didn't want to make a, at least, I mean, look, it would have been nice to make a really buttoned up movie that everything was really clean, but I, I wanted it to be a manic movie mm. and I wanted it to feel like a lot of different things. And I wanted you to be with Tommy, doubt Tommy, be with him, doubt Tommy. I wanted the moments to be thrillery, to feel a little tense. I wanted the moments that were comedic to feel comedic. And I wanted the romantic stuff to feel romantic. And I wanted to give you a lot in 90 minutes. And so I wanted you to go on that ride, ideally, where you said, is this fucking real or not? What the hell is this? Because And then at the end, um, and I'll cut this part out because it's about the end. You. Well, we had a lot of different versions of the ending. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, we just did. Um, there was... There was a lot of gamemanship in post with the editor and I, mm. and we'd put it in front of different crowds of how you end it. Mm -hmm. Because there. <laughs> <laughs>
You know, like that's a fun. That's the see. That's that's the choice that you can make if you're on films three or four. But for Agreed. a first one, you got to kind of land land the plane a bit well, smoother. Honestly, you know, what's funny to say that is, and please, uh, you know, this is hard because these are spoilers, so I don't want to waste too much time on it because I don't want this in there. Remember one time you're like. I've got this whole directing thing, man. Or, or one time where you were like, what the fuck have I gotten myself into? I would say every night from prep through the wrapping of the movie, I had the, what have I gotten myself into? Uh, the workload was just different than I was used to. A lot of decisions that I don't overvalue, uh, that I don't make as a producer, as an actor, uh, were my decisions. If there was a character in the deep background, what kind of shirt they were working, like it where all it, right, it, Fincher, relax. But like that kind of stuff, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> but you have to make decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my like, girlfriend hates that. I'm like, I'm indifferent. I don't care. She's like, I need you to make a decision. Yeah. So a lot of stuff I find certain things really important. And if I don't find something important, I have no opinion. So there's a lot of stuff my wife will life. just decide. Yeah. And I'm happy with her decisions. I yep. didn't realize as a director, that's not a charming answer. Yeah. Because it's someone's job and they'll be like, if Fuck it doesn't me. go well, it's on you. So yeah. what do you like more? And I'd be like, I don't know. Put him in a gray shirt. <laughs> and then gray, you can't see him. He blends in exactly. with the wall. <laughs> but the moments where I felt like I got this, truthfully, were my uh, the DP of the movie, Adam Silver was such a sweet partner and he could have made me look bad in moments, but he never did. Mm. And if we ever on set weren't seeing eye to eye, we would quietly talk and figure it out. Cause a lot of times it would be, I was technically making a mistake and he was saying like, I hear you, but if we, and then he and I would kind of talk and I realized when he was a true ally, I was like, man, he could kill me in front of this crew and the crew would rock with him and he never did. So I felt very confident with him. They just can. I've watched yeah, yeah. DPs murder directors. Right? <laughs> just murder them in like really subtle ways. Just kill them. Because you've got like the general who's like very disconnected from like the soldiers, but then you've got the lieutenant who's there but like the ride DP, or die. The crew works for the DP. But the director's the boss. So you're like, yeah, yeah. yeah kind of, buddy, kind of. Yeah. And so when I realized he was a, a real ally and we were trying to make the same movie, I felt really safe. Uh, and then um, the cast, when I realized that these actors were on board and trying really hard, because I've also been on sets where actors are kind of phoning it in and I don't get it on an indie where I'm like, motherfucker, I know you're not being paid. Try Right. Yeah. You're like, I don't know why you took the job. If your attitude is like, whatever, when do I get to leave? I'm like, mm. you fought to be here, you geek. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. And everybody yeah. came on this movie. People would have their notes. They were like, oh, can I try this? And I thought like, yeah, I man. think that that's props to you, though, because they didn't want to let you down. I think that that speaks to both the, the crew that you put that's together true. and sort of who you are as a that's leader. Nice. But they did it. They And so I felt a lot of times like. I would be sitting at, you know, a lot of times I'm in the scene with people, but the camera, if I'm off camera, I'm looking at the monitor. And as I was looking at the monitor during their performance while trying to connect with them, I would think like, this take is so good. If I just use this, I know I'm good. Yeah. And that okay, was now, a real release. Sorry, Jake. Uh, before I move on to some of your past works, I just want to shout out Dan Romer. He, his oh. score, his score for Maniac is one of my favorites all time of all time. He does the score for this film so just shout out to dan fantastic Dan Romer, artist dan Romer is brilliant 
Yeah. Okay. So, Jake, the last time I spoke to you, you were not a director. You were voicing a basketball coach. A little different. Um, <laughs> I thought we were going Spider-Verse. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> no, because the last time I spoke to you, you gave me an absolutely incredible story about Get Him to the Greek. So I am hoping today that you could do the same for me for 21 Jump Street. Because what I find in both of those films is that you're in it for one scene, and it's yeah. low-key, probably one of the funniest of the whole film. I just watched some of the clips on YouTube last night, and you being like, Okay, let's do that again and pretend you guys aren't weird. You still <laughs> laugh out loud hilarious. So just talk to me about like filming that scene with Jonah and Channing and what comes to mind. You know, it's funny you bring that movie up because... Because uh, it made thinking... your career in a weird way? Because that's how you met <laughs> Phil and Chris. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, but I was thinking a lot. You know, I've been talking to some friends about a project. Um, and I just really miss big comedies that are just for comedy's sake. Mm. There's no lesson in them. There's nothing in besides real funny people trying to be really funny. And what was great about that movie, I mean, that was Chris and Phil. You know, oh, they're now gosh. doing this. And like you had Jonah, you had uh, Channing, who was so funny. You had all these killers. But a funny Channing story, is a revelation in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's also so funny. He's a, yeah. really, a super nice guy, too. Yeah. So but go Dave ahead, Franco, sorry. you had Brie Larson. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> murders. Yeah. Um, but a funny story about that one was on my I was there for three weeks in New Orleans to shoot two scenes. And I had gotten dropped off and it was the summer before New Girl. So my head was really spinning. We had shot the pilot. We were waiting to get picked up. Uh, I knew a lot was going to change in my life. And I had uh, I I was at like the hotel pool by myself, and I see this really nice suburban guy, and he walks up and he goes like, "Hi, you're Jake," and it was Rob Riggle, and he goes, "Hey, I'm Rob Riggle," and he goes, "You're in this movie too, friend," and I go, "Yeah," and he goes, uh, "What are you up to? Are you here with family?" And I was like, "No, I'm alone," and he's like, "Okay, great," and he goes, "Here, I'm here with my lovely wife," and this really nice woman waved, and he goes, "I'm taking her to the airport at twelve. What's your room number? Perhaps we'll get lunch." And I said, yeah, great. So I gave him my room number at 12.01. There was a pounding on my door as if I was being attacked. And I opened the door and Riggle's standing there with moonshine. And he was like, he's like, this moonshine came from Channing. Let's go. And he and I partied for, I think, 40 hours straight. And I just remember there was like a moment where it was like six in the morning we're both either naked. Oh, or hey, Rob, I'm Jake, by the way. I didn't get your name. <laughs> we're in a sauna. And, and I was like, have these glimpses of blacking out where I'm like, this is the wildest 40 hours I've had in a while. And then that kind of got me into the mode of like, all right, everybody in the cast would go out and hang and party and have fun. Yeah. Rob became a friend for life. But I was definitely not in the, the vibe. And then Riggle just ripped the band-aid off yeah well him him too is in, is in a few where he's like put your top put put it back in there uh, rob riggle is one of the funniest things on planet yeah for I real i want to call him a person he's a thing so i want to have a spider-verse chat in a nuanced way if that's remotely possible uh and not just try to clickbait it what do you think chris and phil on and the creative team at large understand about this character that's made these films such a not incomprehensible hit, but I don't think anybody knew the way it would turn out. 
I, I personally think it is a deep passion for the fan base in a way that transcends studios and money. I think the way they care is just different. Like for the first one, you know, just in terms of the way contracts work, as an actor, you get paid for 10 records and everything after that is like a renegotiated deal and it's the money gets goofy. Um, and I've never gone over that because your movies and TV shows are a business run by huge corporations in order to make a profit. If they happen to be good or not is secondary. And so if you're making something and it's good, it's really crazy that it was good. You know, like you had to fit all, all these things. There's a budget, there's days. Like our movie, Self-Reliance, we shot this in 17 days. And that's because we had a budget and our budget was budgeted for 17 days. Chris and Phil do not stop until they think the movie's right. And so I think what happens is you just have people who love so deeply this project and these characters, and they're the first fans. So I think the reason it's hitting so hard is they don't stop until their like inner fan is satisfied. You, and as an actor in it, it's awesome to be part of. I love to ask this of folks who are part of something that is genuinely great. And I think that these films are. Do you have a specific moment that sticks out in your head where it all kind of clicked to you? Like, oh, shit, this is going to be this, this is going to be special. Um, in the first one, when um, I was doing a I think it was the first one where Peter saw MJ. Um, and wow, got sad seeing her. Yeah. Um, and as a voice actor, a lot of times you go in there and you're being really micromanaged and it's, can you say this line like this a little bit faster? Can you just say that word? We can splice it in. And then you hear everybody talking and they'll go like, use the word from the third line and the word, and you go like, all right, you guys will find it. And we did so many takes of that. That's fucking annoying. Sorry, but that's like a crazy way to build a film. I mean, I, I know that that's but how they all, do things, but, but... but every project is different. And the part of this business that people don't. I guess, you know, because it's not the fun part. And they say it in like sports is it's a business. Right. And every right. once in a while you jump on a project and you're all passionate and you realize, oh, this one's just a business. Yeah. And then you jump on another one. I have an idea of what film of yours you might, you might be <laughs> hinting at. So yeah, I'll. I'm not I'll part of that. No, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not with you. <laughs> I'm not making some fake news on that shit. No. I'm keeping my mouth yet. quiet. I would never do that to you. Um, but now the serious question, who would win in a fight? Your Spider-Man, Toby Spider-Man, Garfield Spider-Man, or Tom? I'm just kidding. I am just kidding. <laughs> uh, Jake, I see you've got some storyboard notes back there. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, what, uh, can you tease that yeah, So this, this has become the, uh, so this is my master closet. <laughs> and uh, now that I'm doing the podcast, we started uh, the podcast we we're here to help started with my buddy Gareth Reynolds, and we were just going to do 10 for fun during the strike. And then, you know, we just started doing some pretty good numbers pretty fast, and we had a, we got a base faster than I expected. So those are different episodes. We have a lot banked. We've just recorded with a lot of different people, so we're about 15 episodes ahead. And I like seeing them that way so that we can start like building what shows and, you know, figure out if we're getting in patterns and kind of mess with it. But that's what I use right if I'm doing like a movie or a TV show and now it's mm. a podcast. I just uh, checked out the one with Bobon today. What a mensch that guy is. 
Oh, he's such a prince. How he's how'd you guys link? So I wrote this part with him in mind. Be, uh, because you saw him in John Wick Three, of course. No, honestly, I I saw him in those commercials. Oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah. And he's really funny. Yeah. And I thought, like, man, it'd be so funny if the person who attacks Tommy on the first one, because every every scene in this movie needed to be funny when Tommy explained it, right? So I thought, all right, he gets attacked, but then when he tells the bouncer what happens, what could be unrealistic? And I was like, all right, so what if he was a giant? And then if you just cast a tall guy who's 6'6", well, that's believable. So I was like, what if I found somebody who was like seven, six? Yes. And there, there's just not a lot of people like that, you know? Yeah. And so then I thought like, and I need his lines, his face and his lines to be scary, but also a little funny. And I was like, oh, if Bowman does it, he's just perfect. And so I think I just reached out to him on social media and on Instagram. Hey dude, I think you're perfect for this role that's scary and a bit funny. Yes, I was like, and then I sent him the script and I was like, if you want to Zoom and we got into FaceTime and uh, the reason I had him on the podcast too is what I didn't realize is just how funny he is and how charming yeah. he is. Yeah. He walks in a room and everybody loves him. Yep. He seems like such a great guy, just such a vibey kind of chill guy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so then I was like, I just, I'm like, man, I would like to work with you forever. Yeah. Jake, man, congrats. I'm sure this is a huge, you know, it's a big deal, man. How long did this take from start to end? You know, the writing was kind of on and off for a few years. And then pre-production was probably about four months. We shot it in 17 days. Oh, uh, yeah. Nice, uh, man. It was, it was manic. Yeah. Uh, and then we edited it. And we were able to do a couple different rounds of reshoots, which were really nice and helpful, where you put it in front of an audience, you get notes, you have great discussions, and you tweak it. And so we probably took about eight months to a year to edit it down. Uh, Ryan Brown, the editor, is just, he's an old, we've worked together since Paperheart. He's just a killer. And mm. then, you know, the final touches, a lot of it with the Dan Romer score, sitting with Dan yeah. in his basement. And when that kind of came together, once we found the score, mm. then I felt like, all right, now we got a movie. Because I think the score really sums it up and that it's like really scary, really intense, but it's also ridiculous. Like he's doing that stuff on like, you know, garbage bins and two hitting two by fours. Huh. It's not like beautiful percussions. Yeah, yeah. He's great. Well, Jake, congrats, man. Uh, you come across as one of just the easiest guys to root for in the business. So I hope that that translates to your film, which hits Hulu on January 12th. Self-reliance. Thanks. Buddy. Thank you, Jake. All right. Thank you to my trio of guests for joining me. I hope you enjoyed those conversations. That's the second time I've spoken to Jake Johnson, who was the first ever guest on this podcast. I'm great as Dave. In COVID. He is so fun. He is just such a regular guy. I had so much fun talking to him. I hope to just talk to him again. I hope to just hang out with him one day because he's that cool of a guy. B, it was great to see you, dude. I hope this year is bountiful for you, my friend. Thank you, sir. The same to you, of course. All right, folks. We will talk to you whenever I feel like it. All right, peace. <laughs> That's a good sign off. <laughs>